Chapter Six of Bertram Cope's Year. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. Bertram Cope's Year, by Henry Blake Fuller. Chapter Six. Cope dines and tells about it. Cope pushed away the last of the themes and put the cork back in the red ink bottle. Here was a witless girl who seemed to think that Herrick and Cooper were contemporaries. The last sense to develop in the western void was apparently the sense of chronology, unless, indeed, it were a sense for the shades of difference which served to distinguish between one age and another, and provided the raw material that made chronology a matter of consequence at all. "'If there were only one more,' muttered Cope, looking at the pile of sheets under the gas globe, "'I should probably learn that Chaucer derived from Beaumont and Fletcher.' He reached up and jerked the gas jet to a different angle. The flame lit, through its nicked pale pink globe, a bedroom cramped in size and meagre in furnishings, a narrow bed, dressed to look like a lounge, two stiff-backed oak chairs, not lately varnished, a bookshelf overhead, with some dozen of the more indispensable aids to our tongue's literature. The table at which he sat was one of plain deal, covered with some oriental-seeming fabric, which showed here and there ink-spots that antedated his own pen. He threw up this covering as it fell over the front edge of the table, pulled out a drawer, laid a sheet of paper in the bettered light, and uncorked a black ink bottle. "'Dear Arthur,' he began. He looked across to the other chair with its broken spindles and obfuscated varnish. With things as he wanted them, his correspondent would be sitting there, and letter-writing would be unnecessary. "'Dear Arthur,' he repeated aloud, and set himself to a general sketch of the new land and the lay of it. Three-quarters of them are, of course, girls, he presently found himself writing, which is the common proportion almost everywhere, I presume, except in engineering and dentistry. However, there are four or five men. I've been pretty careful, and they still treat me with respect. I'm afraid my course is regarded as a snap. Everybody, it seems, can grasp English literature and produce it and almost anybody, I begin to fear, can teach it, judging, that is, from the pay. I'm afraid the good folks at Freeford will find themselves pinched for another year still. He glanced across toward the pile of corrected themes. He felt that not everybody was called, as a matter of course, to write English, and he stubbornly nourished the belief that toiling over others' imperfections was more of a job than boards of trustees always realized. Of course, he presently resumed, things are rather changed from what they were before. I find more in the way of social opportunities and greater interest shown by the middle-aged. It is no disadvantage to cultivate people who have their own homes. The lunchrooms round the fountain square are numerous enough, but not so good as they might be and I don't know but that an instructor may lose caste by eating among a miscellany of undergraduates. Anyhow, it's no plan to pursue for long. 
He sat for a moment, lost in thought over recent social experiences. One very good house has lately been opened to me, he continued. I dined there last Thursday evening. It's really quite a mansion, a great many large rooms, picture gallery, ballroom, and all that, and the dinner itself was very handsomely done. You know my theory, a theory rather forced upon me, in truth, by circumstances, that the best way to enjoy a good meal is to have had a string of poor ones. Well, since coming back, and with no permanent arrangements made, I have had plenty of chance for getting into position to appreciate the really first class. There was a color scheme in pale pink ribbons of that color, pink icing on the cakes, and so on. The same thing could be done, and done charmingly, in light green, with pistache ice cream. Of course the candle shades were pink too. His eyes wandered toward a small triangular closet, made off from the room by a flimsy and faded calico print curtain. I had my dress suit cleaned and pressed, but the lapels of the coat came out rather shiny, and I thought it better to hire one for the occasion. There is no trouble about a fit. I have standardized shoulders, as you know. Of course, I miss you all the time, and I assuredly missed you just here. If it is really true, as you write, that you are holding your summer gains, and weigh twelve pounds more than you did at the end of June, and if you are thinking of getting a new suit, please bear in mind that my own won't last much longer. I have the chance, now, to go out a good deal, and to meet influential, worthwhile people. In the circumstances, I ask you not to bant. One rather spare man, in a pair of men, is enough. My hostess, a Mrs. Phillips, I met at a tea during my first week. This tea was given by a lady in the mathematical department, and she and her husband were at the dinner. They are people in the early or middle thirties, I judge, and were probably put in as a connecting link between the two sections of the party. Mrs. Phillips herself is a rich widow of forty-odd, forty-five or six, possibly though I am not the very best judge in such matters. No need to tell you that, on such a point, my eye and my general sense are none too acute. The only other middle-aged or elderly person present was a Mr. Randolph, who was perhaps fifty, or a little beyond, yet who appears to have his younger moments. There were some girls, and there were two young men in business in the city, neighbors, and not connected with the university at all for which relief, etc., since it is a bit benumbing to move in academic circles exclusively. I should hate to feel that a really professional manner was stealing over me. Well, everybody was lively and gay, except at first writer. He's the math man. But even he limbered up finally. Mrs. Phillips herself has a great deal of action and vivacity. Seemed hardly more than thirty. Well, I could be pretty gay, too, with a lot of money behind me, and I think that, for another year or so, I can contrive to be gay without it. But after that... I wish you had been there instead of Ryder. If you are really going to be twenty-seven in November, as I figure it, you might yourself have served as a connecting link between youth and age. No. No, I take it back. I didn't mean it. I wouldn't have you seem older for anything, and you know it. 
There were three girls. They all live in the house itself, forming a little court. Mrs. P. seems to need young life and young attentions, so not one of them had to be taken home. There's usually that to do, you know. Not that it would have mattered much, as the distances would have been short, and the night was clear starlight. But they could all stay where they were, and I walked home in quite different company. Cope threw back his oriental table cover once more and drew out a few additional sheets of paper. One of them is an artist. She paints portraits and possibly other things. Oh, I was going to say there is an art gallery at the top of the house. Her husband, I mean Mrs. Phillips, was a painter and collector himself, and after dinner we went up there and a curious man came in, propelling a wheeled chair, a sort of death's head at the feast. But don't let me get too far away from the matter in hand. She is dark and a bit tonguey, the artist girl, and I believe she would be sarcastic and witty if she weren't held down pretty well. I think she's a niece. The relationship leaves her free, as I suppose she feels, to express herself. If you like the type, you may have it, but wit in a woman, or even humor, always makes me uncomfortable. The feminine idea of either is a little different from ours. Another girl is a musician. She plays the violin quite tolerably. Yes, yes, I recall your views about violin playing. It's either good or bad, nothing between. I'll say this, then. She played some simple and unpretentious things and did them very deftly. Simple, unpretentious, oddest thing in the world, for she is a recent graduate of our school of music and began this fall as an instructor. Wouldn't you have expected to find her demanding a chance to perform a sonata, at the least, or pining miserably for a concerto with full orchestra? Well, this young lady I put down as a plain boarder. You can't maintain a big house on memories and a collection of paintings. She's a nice child, and I dare say makes as good a boarder as any nice child could. The third girl, if you want to hear any more about them, seems to be a secretary. Think of having the run of a house where a social secretary is required. I'm sure she sends out the invitations and keeps the engagement book. Besides all that, she writes poetry. She is the minstrel of the court. She does verses about her chatelaine, is quite the mistress of self-respecting adulation. She would know the difference between Herrick and Cooper. Cope pulled out his watch. Then he resumed. It's half past ten, but I think I'll run on for a few moments longer. If I don't finish, I can wind up tomorrow. Mr. Randolph sat opposite me. He looked at me a lot and gave attention to whatever I said, whether said to him or to my neighbors right and left, or to the whole table. I didn't feel him especially clever, but easy and pleasant and friendly. Also a little shy, even after we had gone up to the ballroom. I'm afraid that made me more talkative than ever. You know how shyness in another man makes me all the more confident and rackety. Be sure that voice of mine rang out. But not in song. There was a piano upstairs, of course, and that led to a little dancing. Different people took turns in playing. I danced, once, with each of the three girls, and twice with my hostess. 
Then I let Ryder and the two young businessmen do the rest. Randolph danced once with Mrs. Phillips, and that ended it for him. My own dancing, as you know, is nothing to brag of. I think the young ladies were quite satisfied with the little I did. I'm sure I was. You also know my views on round dances. Why dancing should be done exclusively by couples, arranged strictly on the basis of contrasted sexes. I think of the good old days of the Renaissance in Italy, when women, if they wanted to dance, just got up and danced, alone, or, if they didn't want to dance alone, danced together. I like to see soldiers or sailors dance in pairs, as a straightforward outlet for superfluous physical energy. Also, peasants in a ring, about a maypole or something. Also, I very much like square dances and reels. There were enough that night for a quadrille, with somebody for the piano and even somebody to call off. But who ever sees a quadrille in these days? However, I mustn't burn any more gas on this topic. I sat out several dances between Mrs. Phillips and Mr. Randolph. He thought he had done enough for her, and she thought I had done enough for them all. And one of the young businessmen did enough for that springy, still young Mrs. Ryder. Once, indeed, Mrs. Phillips asked me if I wouldn't like to try a third dance with her. She goes at it with a good deal of old-time vivacity and vim. But I told her she must know by this time that I was something of a bungler. I wouldn't quite say that, she returned, smiling, but we continued to sit there side by side on a sort of bench built against the wall, and she seemed as well pleased to have it that way as the other. She did, however, speak about a little singing. I told her that she must have found me something of a bungler there, too, and reminded her that I couldn't play the accompaniments of my best songs at all. Arthur, my dear boy, I depend on you for that, and you must come down here and do it. No singing, then. But Mrs. Phillips was not quite satisfied. Wouldn't I recite something? Heavens! Well, of course I know lots of poems. C'est mon métier. I repeated one. Then other volunteers were called upon. It was entertaining with a vengeance. The young ladies had to chip in also though they, of course, were prepared to. And one of the young businessmen did some clever juggling, and Mrs. Ryder sang a little French ballad, and Mr. Randolph, poor man, was suddenly routed out of his placidity, and responded as well as he could with one or two little stories, not very pointed, and not very well told. But I judge he makes no great claim to being a raconteur, he was merely paying an unexpected tax as gracefully as he could. Well, as I was saying, the man in the wheeled chair came in. Of course he hadn't been down to dinner. I think I saw a tray for him carried along the hall. As he was working his way through the door, I suppose I must have been talking and laughing at my loudest, and that big bare room done in hardwood made me seem noisier still. He sort of stopped and twitched, and appeared to shrink back in his chair. I presume my tones went straight through the poor twisted invalid's head. He must have fancied me from the racket I was making as a sort of free-and-easy Hercules, which is not quite the case, if not as the whole football squad rolled into one. Whether he really saw me then or thereafter, 
I don't know. He wore a sort of green shade over his eyes. Of course, I met him in due form. I tried not to give his poor hand too much of a ring, another of my bad habits, but he took all I gave and even seemed to hang on for a little more. He sat quietly to one side for a while, and I tried not to act the bull of Bashan again. Anyhow, he didn't start a second time. Presently he pulled out rather unceremoniously. The two young businessmen had begun a sort of burlesque fandango, and their feet were pretty noisy on the bare floor. He started off after looking toward the piano, and then toward me. And Mrs. Phillips glanced about as if to hint that any display of surprise or of indulgence would be misplaced. Poor chap. Well, I'm glad he didn't see me dancing. We broke up about eleven, and Mr. Randolph suggested that, as we lived in the same general direction, we might walk homeward together. Great heaven, it's eleven and five after now. Enough, in all conscience, for tonight. You shall have the rest tomorrow. End of chapter 6. Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista.